Hi everyone, I'm your host, Jaco Selka, and you are listening to Hopefully Sustainable. Each week, I'm going to talk to extraordinary people who are doing extraordinary things to make the world a more sustainable place. My goal is for this episode to leave you feeling hopeful about an idea, a person, or the world in general. Thank you for joining me in this conversation, and all together we can be hopefully sustainable. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hopefully Sustainable. I am extremely excited about today's episode, as the person I am speaking with has over 40 years of experience in the sustainability field. Barry Abramson, one of the principals for Servidine, graduated from Stanford, where he was so passionate about the environment that he made his own major, Energy and Environmental Engineering. Barry has spent the past 40 years improving the energy efficiency, environmental impact, and economic performance of buildings. He has provided energy and sustainability consulting to many government and private sector organizations all over the U.S. And did I mention, he's also my boss. I had the opportunity to join Servidine back in January 2020 as a sustainability analyst, Over the past year, it's been such an incredible opportunity to learn from people like Barry, who have been in the sustainability field for four decades. In today's episode, Barry is going to discuss with us how the sustainability field has grown over the past 40 years, and we are really going to dive in to the green building industry. This past year, just like every other industry, Our company has been impacted by the pandemic, and we've really had to shift our focus and our business model. We started offering two new services this past year, building off of the existing services that we already offer, which are building readiness assessments and well health safety rating certifications. Barry is going to talk about the building readiness assessments, which involves an evaluation of the existing building systems and operations, including a risk assessment and recommended risk mitigation measures that buildings can put into place. And these are all backed up by the CDC guidance to the specific conditions of each building. The other service that we have really had to dive into this past year is the WELL Health Safety Rating or WELL HSR certifications. I had the opportunity this past year to become a well-accredited professional, and we have been helping buildings achieve this certification. As Well describes it, the Well Health Safety Rating is informed by the Well Building Standard and more than 600 experts from the task force on COVID-19. The Well HSR is for facility operations and management, and it Its goal is to help buildings and organizations address the health, safety, and well-being of their most valuable asset, people. For all of the listeners, they will actually be launching a campaign this week that is aimed at reaching the general public through different advertisements on various television networks. So if you watch CNN or ESPN, be on the lookout to learn more about this certification. Throughout the episode, I hope that as people begin to return to work, This episode can empower you to be more knowledgeable about the role that buildings play in our health and safety. Before I started at Servidine, I had honestly never really thought about the role that the places I'm in every single day play in my 
health, and especially in the midst of a pandemic, we are focusing on this now more than ever. So enjoy the episode. I hope that you can really learn more about the green building industry, these different approaches that buildings are taking to make sure that they are safe for our return, and just to learn more about the amazing company that I work for. Let's get started. Hi, Barry. Welcome to Hopefully Sustainable. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. So, yeah, I'm really excited about doing this also, and I appreciate you inviting me onto this. I know you've interviewed a lot of interesting people, so, uh, you know, glad to be part of this. Um, so I am, um, I've been in the sustainability field for a long time, about probably 45 years or so. Um, so I currently, I'm a, one of the principals at Servidine, um, as you know, is a uh, consulting firm based in Atlanta, Georgia, and we do all kinds of things in regard to sustainability and buildings. Great. So I'm interested. I don't know the answer to many of these questions, even though we work together. But growing up, were you always interested in pursuing a career in the environmental sector? Or was it something that you became interested in when you got to college or later in life? Yeah. So I think the thing the thing that really first got me sort of aligned toward environmentalism was I grew up in Los Angeles in the 1960s and early 70s. And back then, smog was a huge thing. And I can remember um, playing on the playground in elementary school. And if it was a bad smog day, you got this really deep pain in your lungs after running around on the playground for a few hours. Um, And we just thought it was normal. I mean, that was just it. It was smoggy that day. That's what was going to happen. And so that kind of started me on the path, I guess. And um, I was always interested in, you know, how do you deal with pollution? And at that time, um, you know, I think the the universe of sort of looking at the environment was air pollution and water pollution. Um, There wasn't really a lot about climate change at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started to think I would go into some kind of technology field that would deal with like cutting pollution. So when you got to college, you went to Stanford, which I'll ask you about in a little bit, but what made you pursue energy and environmental engineering as a major? I know there's a breadth of different majors you probably could have picked in the environmental sector. So how did you land on that one? Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, there was no such major. (laughs) I had to make it up myself. Luckily, um, Stanford had this thing where you could design your own major if you didn't like any of the ones that they had to offer. Um, so I was, I knew I wanted to deal with, you know, environmental issues. And um, the more that I got knowledge of what sort of some of the underlying problems were, the more it led me to be uh, interested in energy. And, but I didn't want to just strictly focus on the kinds of um, energy coursework there was, which was mainly just sort of traditional um, power plants and things like that. And I also didn't want to just focus on what was then environmental engineering back then was just basically civil engineering that was dealing with wastewater treatment plants. 
<laughs> that was kind of the, the be all and end all of environmental engineering. So I tried to you know pick classes from several different disciplines um, and, and I just named it myself, energy and environmental engineering. Do they have a major like that now? There's actually a building called the Energy and Environmental <laughs> Building. <laughs> and they didn't no. name it the Barry Abrams. No, building. unfortunately, uh, I think they named it for the people, the guys that formed Yahoo. Oh, well, that's too bad. <laughs> I think those guys probably contributed a little bit more money than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned how there wasn't really any sort of environmental or this specific major at Stanford. Can you tell us a little bit about your college experience at Stanford? Was there a lot going on with the environment at that time? Or were you kind of leading this pack a little bit? Um, No, there was a lot to to plug into and to learn from. I mean, you know, when I went to college, it was um, a few years after the first Earth Day. Um, So just to kind of situate this in (laughs) historical context. Um, So there was a lot rumbling around on campus in terms of environmental activism and things like that. And then there were some great professors that had, you know, obviously they didn't have a background in this because it didn't exist when they when they were coming up, but they had switched over from whatever their disciplines were. Um, The guy that I consider my mentor um, was uh, a guy who had come up in electrical engineering but he got totally enamored with um, you know, environmental issues and he created a whole curriculum around learning about um, you know, ecology and how to apply engineering to different, solving different environmental problems. And that's, I would say he had a huge influence on um, you know, leading me down this path. Wow. So obviously I met you at Servidine when I was hired early last year. But can you kind of walk us through how you got to Servidine and the years in between when you graduated from college and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So um, right out of college, I worked for a little municipal utility company in Palo Alto, California. Um, And they were just starting to do some energy conservation programs. And so um, I I was going around the, the city and measuring attics and uh, recommending that people put insulation in their attics and things like that, um, which was a great experience. Um, And then um, I decided to move out of California and landed in Atlanta. And I really didn't have a set plan. It was just sort of wanted to, you know, see what was going on in a different part of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, so then I started interviewing and I interviewed with the utility companies. They weren't real interested in what I was interested in at that time. One thing I remember, I I had an interview with Georgia Power and this was in 1980, I think. And, you know, I came in, I had like a, you know, long hair and, you know, I looked like granola, crunchy type (laughs) from California. And even though I had a pretty good resume, you know, so they interviewed me, but I could tell that they were a little uneasy. And I, one of the questions they asked was, well, you know, cause I was really into solar energy at that time. And the guy asked, um, well, in 20 or 30 years, what percentage of the electricity supply do you think will be coming from solar? And when he asked the question, I knew it was a test 
because if I said that percentage too high, then they think, oh, this guy is like off the rails. He's just all into this, you know, crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to think, okay, am I going to give him an answer like, oh, I, it'll never be more than 5% and get the job or tell him something else. But anyway, that, that I didn't wind up going to work for Georgia Power. I, I, <laughs> at that time, you looked in the newspaper for want ads and mm-hmm. this company called Servidine um, had a little ad for an energy engineer. And so I went and interviewed there and then they hired me and um, I'm still at Servidine. <laughs> I know there's been a few different iterations of Servidine. How is it different today than it was when you started there? Um, well, it's gone through, yeah, a lot of different, uh, you know, evolutionary pathways. Um, the, when I started, um, and it still is sort of a good kind of a foundation of the company is it was mainly, um, hands-on, um, service work. So the company mainly did a lot of, uh, work in buildings, helping just equipment operate more efficiently, um, helping people maintain their buildings and things like that. Um, and then in the 19, late 1970s, when the energy crises hit um, and energy conservation became a thing, um, they formed a small engineering group that was focused on helping people um, do energy audits and things like that. So I went into that group um, and did that as a kind of a small sideline of the company. Um, but the great thing was that all the people that were there were mainly people that actually did work in buildings and knew how the systems worked and all the you know tricks of those kinds of activities. So that was a great um, you know a great environment to start to learn how to get into buildings and figure out what was going on. So you know it, it grew and it morphed into different things. And you know the, one of the things that Servernine did famously was train a lot of its customers. So they they held training classes and taught people how to operate buildings, uh, how to maintain them. And um, and the trainers were actually people that were service technicians. Um, So it really was a a very good way of imbuing knowledge to folks who were running buildings um, by people who knew it from, you know, from going through that themselves. and then part of the company was bought by a bigger company. Um, it changed, you know, in direction a few times. Uh, we had an interesting um, period where we were part of the green tech bubble. Uh, we were bought by a software company um, out of Silicon Valley and were um, involved with a, a software product that was um all about optimizing building systems and big data and the cloud and all of that stuff in about 2011. Um, so we sort of had a wild ride with that for a few <laughs> Yeah, I heard um, I missed the ping pong beer in the <laughs> office phase. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, that was, uh, that was an interesting twist. Um, <laughs> but we did learn a lot through that process. Um, so then after that, or sort of toward the end of that period, uh, some of us who had been in the engineering group for a while decided that maybe we just want to go back to our normal, you know, walking around buildings and crawling around and looking at what's going on and figuring out how to make them better. Um, and so we, we 
sort of split off from the software company and formed the current version of Serverdyne, which is, uh, as you know, uh, a consulting firm. <laughs> so I know sustainability is somewhat of a new buzzword that's becoming a lot more popular. How have you seen the sustainability field or industry change since you first started at Servidine to now? Um, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I think that we were totally focused on energy efficiency at the beginning, um, and I think you know it's much more uh, it's broadened out to uh, particularly I mean especially water, um, you know, and then there's waste and um, indoor environmental quality, uh, transportation. There's all kinds of different um, elements to sustainability uh, that are much broader than what we started with. I think the thing that where we've maintained a focus is still on buildings. Um, and obviously sustainability goes across the board, but um, even in terms of buildings, we just used to look at energy and now we look at all these different aspects of how do buildings impact um, all of these different realms of, uh, of sustainability. When I was at UGA and I was going through the sustainability program, I think the biggest things that we learned about for the green building industry or the green building movement are these new fancy living buildings and net zero buildings. So why do you find that the existing building space is such a vital part of the green building movement? So that's some, a lot of times the existing building part is like the the, the, the forgotten, you know, <laughs> child of the, of the sustainability uh, realm. Um, so we kind of, we keep, you know, getting on our soapbox and jumping up and down about how important existing buildings are. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it's great to have uh, the, you know, the direction of things in the future that you, you envision with, you know, fantastic buildings that are net zero and, or are actually contributing uh, in a positive way to, to sustainability. Uh, by by being there, um, but we also have all these buildings that are here already. And if you look at how are you going to impact uh, greenhouse gas emissions or any no number of other issues that have to have near term improvement, um, there's a lot of buildings that are doing that you know having impact right now that have to be dealt with, and um, and so that's you know why we feel like focusing on that has. Mm -hmm. First of all, just in terms of the quantity of impact, if you look at, you know, there's a certain percentage of buildings um, get replaced or new buildings get added every year, but it's a very small percentage when you look at that compared to the total building stock. Um, and so that's the biggest, um, you know, source of the problem in terms of the building industry. Um, but also it's the one you can get at most quickly because um, <clears throat> there's so much opportunity and so much waste going on uh, that can be stopped. Yeah, that was something that really stuck with me through my interview process was that a lot of the focus, like you mentioned, is on the future, but we really should be focused on the present, what we can do now as well. And like you said, the existing buildings are forgotten most of the time, but that's where we can make a really big impact right now. How has the pandemic affected our work and the green building industry in general? Um, now that's another great question. <laughs> we've been we've been thinking and talking a lot about that over the past year. Um, that as far as there's sort of a 
there's a broader question of sustainability and um, and how the pandemic has affected that in the building industry. Um, and then there's a specific application of how it's affected us as a company, um, as an individuals in terms of what we've been doing over the past year. Um, so to start with, the, with sort of the broader picture, I think the biggest thing is that um, for buildings, it's really refocused the priorities uh, where you know we used to be mainly focused on how efficient the building was. Um, now we're focused a lot on how well the building is providing the risk mitigation, um, you know, contributing to the health of the people that are in the building in terms of ventilation and air cleanliness and things like that. And um, the challenge is that those two things are at somewhat odds uh, with each other uh, because in some respects you have to use more energy uh, to do things uh, that you need to do in order to have enough ventilation or maximize the situation in a building to, to reduce the risk of the virus. Um, I mean, one of the most blatant things that, you know, keeps people or just gives you the creeps is you do all these things to try to save energy and water. And then what we're telling people now is to flush water down <laughs> the drain <laughs> every week or every day while these buildings are, you know, low, have very low occupancy because if you don't refresh the water that's in the pipes, then you can get Legionella growing in there and you can, you know, the, the disinfectant levels go down. So what <laughs> it just seems so counter to everything we're all about is to tell people, oh, just open all the, you know, faucets and let the water run down the drain <laughs> for a while. Um, but so there is that conflict. Um, so what, you know, I think what's important is to try to figure out how to look at you know, overall and try to minimize the waste that is going on or the, the additional energy and water use um, while making sure that you're prioritizing, you know, having the buildings as safe as possible. You hit on it a little bit, but I wanted you to explain the importance of ventilation in combating the pandemic in layman's terms, because I don't think a lot of people realize the importance of ventilation and you know, right now, especially, I think a lot of restaurants, people feel comfortable eating in them just if they're six feet apart. But there's this other component of ventilation that a lot of the general population doesn't know about. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, another that's something that's really kind of defined our, our whole world as a company over the past year is um, because we had a, a lot of experience and background in buildings and building systems, um, it kind of was a natural move to try to help people operate those systems in the pandemic in the best way possible. And in the early days of the pandemic, there was a lot of focus on, um, you know, in addition to just the direct person to person within six feet, somebody coughing on somebody um, was surface transmission. And so hand washing and, you know, disinfecting surfaces and not touching the doorknobs and stuff like that was... <clears throat> what people were focusing on, but more and more as the science, um, you know, developed in terms of understanding how the transmission was happening, um, there was more and more of an understanding that, um, that there's a lot of transmission um, through airborne uh, pathways. And so when you think about that, then you bring in all of the knowledge that's been gained about other airborne um, things like tuberculosis and 
other pathogens that <clears throat> have that as a um, as a transmission path, and how important it is that ventilation be focused on. So that's one of the things that you know we really emphasize when we're um, we're looking at a building. Yeah, it's great to have the markers to make sure people don't you know get within six feet of each other in the lobby or that not people don't crowd into elevators and um, you know and and that there's a shield at the security desk and things like that. Um, but the amount of fresh air that's coming into the building uh, is really important. And so we're really, we're trying to help people maximize that based on the, the constraints of what the capabilities are in each building. Um, and, the, and But the other thing too that we've really had to combat is um, sort of this vision that well, you can just buy this magic technology and it's going to solve everything. And I have to give uh, props to our colleague, Megan McNulty, who's uh, been really championing um, science as a, as a you know, foundation for approaching what to do in buildings during the pandemic. Um, and that means both, you know, in terms of understanding how important ventilation is, but also uh, looking at what are these technologies that are out there on the market? What's real, what's, you know, what's BS? And um, and, and that people should be focused on the things that actually work. That's one really interesting part of the pandemic is that the general public is being exposed to these different concepts and technologies that they've probably never heard of before. For example, I remember I asked you a few months ago, a local restaurant by my parents' house had installed this new air cleaning technology and most people would read that and think, oh, well, it's safe to eat in the restaurant now. We can go back. So what do you have any advice to people on what they can look for and how to know what to trust when they're going into these different places? Or do you have specific thoughts you want to share about these different technologies? Well, I mean, I don't I don't want to throw aspersions at any anything in particular, but I do think that you know, I think what we were talking about before you were saying like, well, what should people ask when they're walking into a building? Um, it's not what super duper air cleaning, virus killing, you know, thing that has a fancy name and great marketing material behind it uh, <laughs> that they put in. Um, it's how much fresh air are you, are you circulating through the building? Um, and, or are you circulating any fresh air in the building? Um, and how much is it being filtered? Um, by regular old boring air filters that you know everyone has in their apartments or houses, um, but there's different levels of filters and those things work, they're proven. If you get a better filter, it's going to filter out more bad stuff. Um, if you provide more fresh air and you turn the air over in the space more often with clean air, that's going to get virus and other contaminants out of the air. Those are the kinds of things that um, you know, should be questions of how much fresh air are we bringing in and things like that. Not so much, have you put in the latest gadget that, you know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, maybe it'll do some things that are bad, you know, side, side effects that we don't know about yet. Um, so that's kind of, it's, it's, it's sort of focus on some of the things that are kind of the tried and true and that we know won't do any harm. Over the past year, we have kind of shifted our business focus to be on 
two separate things, I would say. So building readiness and then well health safety readings. So can you talk about each one and how we are using that and providing those services to clients in order to combat the pandemic? Sure. So in terms of building readiness, um, that's something that, you know, that term probably wasn't very much used for the past year. But basically, we're helping people. Uh, most of the office buildings that we uh, that we're working with are fairly empty at this point, um, and have been empty since last March. Um, so the question is, well, what do you do with a building while it's got 10% occupancy or even lower than that? Um, and then the other question is, well, how do you get it ready for when people come back? And so we've been advising people on both of those um, fronts, um, both in terms of keeping things um, safe, keeping the systems in good shape, uh, making sure you don't start growing mold all over the building because you <laughs> cut things back too far, uh, but also not wasting energy or water while the building doesn't really need to be operating at full, full blast. Um, but then the question of readiness, um, you know, there's some very specific things that we can look at in terms of how the buildings are being operated and what they should be doing uh, to get ready for uh, a bunch of people coming back. And one of the simple things is that um, <clears throat> what's called like a, you know, running a purge cycle. So um, <clears throat> this is an industry recommendation where um, every night after the building is empty or in the morning before people get there, to run the ventilation systems so that the entire air in the building is cleared out. Um, and that does go, you know, sort of counter to our past, you know, total focus on energy because people tried to operate the ventilation systems as, you know, for the least amount of time as possible. But now we're saying, look, you need to start up a few hours before the building opens or run a few hours after to completely clear out the, the air in the building at least three times. And if you do that, then you get rid of 95% of the junk that was in, in the air. So that's kind of one example of, of, a, of a readiness um, thing that we're, that we're um, helping people to implement. I think you also asked about the well health safety rating. Um, so you're very, very familiar with that, <laughs> having become a, a well accredited professional in the, in the past year. Um, so, you know, the other important thing for our clients is to be able to communicate what they're doing to the people that need to feel comfortable coming back into the buildings. And so it's one thing for them to say, well, here's all the things we're doing, but it's another to have a third party verified, uh, <clears throat> you know, certification that somebody in the industry that has kind of gone through and figured out here are the key things that buildings should be doing, has looked at what the building is doing and said, yes, you have done uh, a lot of good things and you're deserving of recognition. And then you can use that recognition to help make people feel better about your building and, and you know, your occupants coming back in. So that's well health safety rating is one of those um, programs that, that was rolled out this year. And we found it to be um, very, you know, appropriate in terms of the kinds of things that it's looking at and helpful because it, on the one hand, it does document and promote what the building's already doing, but it also, um, you know, it may bring up some things that 
people haven't thought about that, then now they're they're on the table for people to to implement and sort of improve their overall efforts. One thing about the well health safety reading that I think is interesting on a sustainability level is that it really looks at all different aspects of the building from does the restaurant in the building display the food score to this ventilation that we talked about, which is so important. So it's really interesting because it covers all three pillars of sustainability. And another interesting aspect for listeners is that they're probably going to be seeing these campaigns that are going to be coming out in the next few weeks. So that's another kind of aspect of where the public is really getting to learn all about these different technologies and fields that they might not have ever heard of before the pandemic. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think the thing, you know, one of the things that sort of stretched our um, vision on this whole thing was when you do look at all of the features in the in that well health safety rating program, a lot of things, you know, we don't normally think about. Um, but when you start thinking, okay, well, what, how does this impact the situation? Like one of the things is you have to delve into what the, uh, you know, health benefits are of the employees uh, working in the building or how much sick leave do they give? And it's like, well, okay, whatever it is, it is what it is. But when you think about it, uh, one of the key things is keeping sick people out of the buildings. And what enables people to stay home is their sick leave, you know, paid sick leave and their health insurance and all those other things that, um, so yeah, we can ventilate the buildings, we can, you know, clean the surfaces and things like that. But if people are not able to stay home when they're sick, uh, because they have a, you know, substandard, you know, sick leave benefits, then you're bringing the virus into the building and it can defeat everything else you're doing. So it is really helpful to see how these rating systems are approaching it from that sort of broader perspective. Well, I think this has been a really great conversation and hopefully people who might not have known that much about ventilation or about the green building industry in general now have a better idea of how the pandemic plays into all the different spaces that they are entering on a daily basis. And for the last question, since the podcast is called Hopefully Sustainable, and I like to end on a positive note, I wanted to ask what you are hopeful about. Well, okay. Well, I got an easy answer. The the thing that gives me hope is people like you. Uh, you know, as somebody who's been in sustainability for, as I said, over 40 years, um, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse if you look at the global situation. And, you know, it's such a dire, uh, daunting, huge thing to look at where we're at in climate change and how, you know, the vast majority of people on the planet are living now uh, with, you know, feeling some of the uh, the impacts with the how many, tens of millions of people enforced migration around the world due to climate change. And then, you know, what's to come, which is not looking good. Um, so if you look at it from all of that aspect, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, depressing. Um, but to me, the thing is, is that there's you and your generation that have shown a real passion toward this. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take people that aren't you know, satisfied with the status quo um, that approach this from the standpoint of the whole world and what role you can play in making a difference um, in that effort. And it's happening. I mean, there's, you know, millions and millions of people around the world, a lot of young people 
who have stepped up and um, that's what makes me hopeful. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm also grateful to be at a company who is providing these sustainability jobs for people in my generation. So it's been really amazing to be able to take my passion for sustainability into an actual career. So I'm glad to be at Servidine. So thank you for being here today, Barry. Thank you. And we're glad you're at Servidine too. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about today's guest or just say hello, check out the show notes and find us on Instagram at hopefully sustainable pod. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. As you finish this episode, remember that we are all on a personal journey to make the world a better place, but it's all about progress, not perfection. Until next time, stay hopeful and stay sustainable.